Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you, and it's good to continue with you on this journey of beholding the Lord throughout the summer. Uh, This month, we're focusing on Jesus the Son. We're focusing on what He's like, who He is, His work, and uh, what He's like in relationships. And today, we're going to be looking at His prominence throughout Scripture and all of human history. And as we do that, our hope is that we will begin to reflect him more and more in our daily lives. Um, About 20 years ago, I made some poor choices. My wife would say they were terrible choices. Have Have you ever gotten lost? Have you ever gotten you and all the people you were with lost? Have you ever gotten you and all the people you're with lost in such a way that you weren't sure if you were ever gonna be found again? Well, that's what happened to me in Mexico about 20 years ago. Uh, We were doing some student ministry at the University of Guadalajara, and one of the students, we hadn't been there very long, one of the students, Ruben, showed up. And if I could roll the R, I would, but I can't. So I just, I'm gonna say Ruben. So Ruben showed up and he asked us if if we wanted to go to his hometown and meet his family, his extended family, somewhere outside of the city. And of course I said, yes. This was the same student who a couple weeks before showed up on campus and had a big lump on his face. I said, KSO, what's that? And he said something I couldn't understand. The student beside him said, oh, a scorpion stung him on the face. Of course, in his hometown, you get stung in the face by scorpions, the place I agreed that our team would go to. So we head off to Santa Maria, which is this little tiny town. I mean, there's nothing there. We go through a couple of buses, then we get in a truck. When I say in a truck, I don't mean in the cab, I mean in the back of the truck. And we go on these dirt roads and show up in this little town. They're so excited to see us. And they have like this adventure planned for us. So they put us back into the truck and this older fella gets in the car along with Ruben and then seven of us. We're in the back of a truck. We're no longer on roads. We're just going through the countryside, trying not to get bounced out of the back of this truck. We're heading towards the mountains outside of Guadalajara and we end up outside of a cave. And all this older guy has is himself and a torch, not lit, a torch. He is called the Gia, he's the guide, and he has a particular light source that he has chosen. And we head into the side of this mountain. No one knows where we are. We didn't have cell phones back then. The hole that we wandered into could have been the hole that we died in. Like that's the type of choice that we were making. So we just followed this random guy. Our Spanish wasn't very good, and they didn't know how to speak English at all. So we followed him, of course, right into the side of this mountain. So we go into the the cave. We go a little farther, a little farther. There's kind of a drop-off. We have to climb down a log. One of the women wore flip-flops, not a good choice, so we're trying to help her. As it gets darker, we start holding on to each other because there's no way of seeing what's in front of us. And as we're walking, the ground is getting muddier, and slimier, and it's getting thicker and thicker. Remember, one of the girls has flip-flops on. And I'm like, what is happening? We get to the point where you can't see anything. And all of a sudden, out in front of us, the guia, the guide, starts clicking his lighter. And he clicks it and lights his torch on fire and sticks it out in front of us. He had led us into the cave, and inside the cave was, was this giant cavern where it just kind of fell off and went way up. I don't know how many humans have ever seen this before, but it's in some random mountain. And when he holds the torch out, there are bats. I mean, hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of bats flying in circles inside of this cavern. They were not very happy that we were there. We weren't very happy that we were there. Like in that moment, I had several thoughts that went through my mind. 
you have made a bad choice. We are likely going to die, and I don't think that was mud that we were walking in a minute ago. So we had been walking through bat poop that whole time, and we're covered in it, and we're in the middle of a cave with hundreds, if not thousands of bats flying around our head, just like, what has happened? So eventually we get back out of the cave. We all agree that we're no longer going to take random adventures into random holes on the sides of mountains with people that we don't know. But when we were in the cave, there were a couple things that we had to depend on. We had to depend on our guide and we had to depend on the torch. Without those two things, I wouldn't be here today. We would still be in the side of that mountain somewhere in a, ca in a cave, likely likely we would have become that bat stuff that we stepped in. Like that's where that whole story was going. But God used those two things to help get us in and get us out. When it comes to the Old Testament, sometimes it can feel like we're sort of wandering in the dark. And the Lord provides a couple things for us to see the focus, the point, and the purpose of the Old Testament, a guide and a torch. But what the Lord uses is his promises and his presence his promises and his presence. And through those two things, he starts to show us the central theme of the Old Testament. I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you what it is. It's the prominence of Jesus, the centrality of the Son of God from beginning to end. And we're gonna look at those two things, his promises and his presence to see the prominence of Jesus. Jesus is the central figure of the Old Testament. He is the central figure of the Old Testament. So let's start with the promise of Jesus. Right at the beginning, in Genesis chapters one, two, and three, we find something amazing, the creation of all things, and then we find something horrible, sin breaking all things. Adam and Eve, right from the beginning, choose to rebel against God. And in that rebellion, everything breaks. The relationship with God breaks. The relationship with one another breaks. The world itself creation breaks under the weight of sin. And it's in those moments that the Lord shows up. The Bible describes the Lord showing up in the cool of the day. And it appears that he oftentimes would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But this time, after sin, the Lord shows up and they're hiding in the bushes. They have fig leaves covering themselves. And the Lord basically calls them out in front of him. And he also pulls in the serpent the serpent is the one who tempted Adam and Eve to make the decision to sin. And the Lord looks at the serpent. And in those moments, he casts judgment on the serpent, but he also has this promise, this promise of a coming Messiah, a coming savior that he points to immediately in this darkest moment in humanity. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, there's this promised head crusher. He says this, looking right at the serpent. He says, I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman. So he's looking at the serpent and he's looking at Eve. He's gonna create hostility between him and her, between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring, between your seed and her seed, both meaning offspring. And then he says, he will crush your head. There's going to be hostility between your offspring and her offspring. And he, speaking of one coming from her offspring, will crush your head. There is a singular he who is coming, who will destroy 
the power of sin, death, and Satan himself. So at the very beginning, when it looks like all, all has gone dark, it is made clear that there's one who is coming. There's one who is coming. There's one who is coming. So there's hope springs forth out of this dark moment. The triune God sets this plan of redemption, of salvation into motion here in the very first moments of interaction with Adam and Eve. The promise has been made. It is now in motion. Jesus is coming. And in Genesis chapter 12, he now talks to Abraham and he kind of refers back to this promise in a different way. He's talking to Abraham and he's pulled Abraham out of his country and he's giving Abraham these promises, okay? If we could put this on the back screen, that would help me. He pulls out Abraham and gives him these promises. He says, I will make you, Abraham, a great nation and I will bless you. So he looks at him and says, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And we know that happened, the people of Israel. Then he says to Abraham, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. We're talking about his name right now. He then says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So throughout the prophets, what we see happening is every time someone has gone after Israel, God goes after them. Oftentimes blessings and judgment are based upon how people treat the Lord and the Lord's people. So that promise has come true and has been consistent but here's the last promise, and here's the one I want us to really focus on. It says, and all peoples on earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth, Abraham, are gonna be blessed through you. So remember, there's one who is coming. There's the offspring of the woman. There's one who is coming through whom the power of sin, death, and Satan is going to be crushed. And now God starts to like funnel that down. This one who is coming is gonna come through you, Abraham. So we, both, we see both the promise of Jesus and we see the scope of God's redemptive plan. All nations, all nations. So even though Abraham and the Israelites are being signaled out here, it was about the whole world. It is about the whole world. It will always be about the whole world. So here's this promise that one is coming through whom all nations will be blessed. And the only blessing that really matters is knowing God and having full access to him through salvation in Jesus Christ. And we see this promise of the coming of Jesus repeated over and over again. If we had more time, we'd go to Genesis 18. We go to Genesis 22. We go to Genesis 26. We go through the Psalms. We go through the prophets. We're over and over again. There's this ongoing promise that he is coming. He is coming. He's gonna deal with this sin. He's gonna store his people back to himself. This promise is central. And this central promise points to the prominence of Jesus. In Galatians 3.8, it talks about this comment, this promise made to Abraham. And Paul says this, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That was the gospel message at that point in history. Now we have a fuller understanding of the gospel, but Abraham was hearing the gospel from God himself when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. That was the gospel message because at that moment, the gospel was a promise. It was yet to come, but the gospel was being preached in that moment. 
The centrality of Jesus is clear. The promises of the Old Testament function as a guide and they point us to the centrality of Jesus. The second thing that sticks out is the presence of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. The presence of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. I still remember back sitting in my kitchen. I was in high school and I was, had kind of been working through the Bible from beginning to end, which is not an easy thing to do. I wouldn't, that's probably not the easiest way to read the word, but that's what I was doing. So I had just gotten done reading through the Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then I got to John. And I'm reading in chapter one. And verse 18 starts this way. It says, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. I remember sitting up in my chair just thinking, what in the world does that mean? I just read the Old Testament. God was all over the place. People talked to him, people saw him. He intervened in hard situations. He was everywhere. So I literally sat there confused. I started going back through the Old Testament. I started reading some books when really all I had to do was read the second half of the verse. And eventually I figured that out. The second half of the verse says this, no one has ever seen God at any time, but the one and only son who is himself God and in closest relationship with the father has made him known. So throughout the Old Testament, every time you see the Lord interacting with his people, especially in a visible way, it's not the father that you're seeing, According to this verse, it's Jesus that you're seeing. It's Jesus interacting with people throughout the Old Testament. It has always been Jesus who is himself God and in closest relationship with the Father who is revealing the Father throughout the Old Testament. He shows up on this scene over and over and over again. John Walvoord, who was a president of Dallas Theological Seminary, a real sharp guy, he said this, it is safe to assume that every visible manifestation of God in bodily form in the Old Testament is to be identified as the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you're thinking through the Old Testament, all those moments where God's interacting with his people, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. And it goes along with other passages in scripture. In Colossians 1.15, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image, the thing you can see of the invisible God, God the Father. In John 14, the disciples are walking along with Jesus and they basically kind of elbow him and say, you know, Jesus, if you would just show us the Father, that would be enough. Just show us the Father and we'll be happy. And Jesus looks at them in John 14, nine and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's not some next level if you see the Father after seeing the Son. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We know they are two divine beings, but yet they're part of a trinity. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. You're not lacking anything. There's no reason to be disappointed. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen everything there is to see. So throughout the Old Testament, there's times where Jesus is referred to as the Lord. There's times where Jesus is referred to as God. There's times where Jesus is referred to as the angel of the Lord. So let's go back to the garden. 
In Genesis 3, 9, that's the verse where it talks about the Lord showing up to walk with them in the cool of the day. The Lord shows up to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve knew he was coming. That's why they were hiding in the bushes. So it was probably something he did all the time. So who was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden? Jesus was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was Jesus who was spending time with them. So let's go back to the scenario and what happened. Jesus calls them out of the bushes and he puts them in front of him, including the serpent. Now it is Jesus who is now looking at the serpent. It is Jesus who is saying, there's going to be hostility between you and your offspring and the woman and her offspring. But Satan, one day there's someone who's coming. I'm coming. And when I come, I am going to absolutely crush and destroy you and your head and your authority and your power. It is Jesus in that moment promising that he is going to come. So in that moment, he's not saying someone else is going to come. He is the he in that verse. What would that have been like for Satan? I don't even know if the enemy knew what was happening in that moment. Jesus knew what was happening. Adam and Eve didn't likely know what was happening, but it was Jesus in that moment promising his coming promising that he would do the work necessary to destroy the power of the enemy. And then just a little bit after, there's this real interesting part that is put into scripture. In Genesis 3.21, it says, the Lord God, if you were here a couple of weeks ago and we talked about the terms Lord God, you'll remember that the Hebrew words there are Yahweh Elohim, like the words used for God. It says, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, referring to Jesus, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. He clothed them. So Jesus, the son of God, dishes out judgments and promises. And then he looks at Adam and Eve who are presently wearing fig leaves. And he decides to take care of them, even in that moment of rebellion. He takes an animal, we don't know which one, and likely for the first time in history, blood is shed. There is now death. Jesus takes this animal, the animal dies, and he takes the skin of the animal and makes clothing for Adam and Eve. Jesus, in that moment, watches something die, blood is shed to take care of Adam and Eve. The sin and the consequences of sin of Adam and Eve who are now experiencing shame what would that be like for him knowing one day, one day, it would be his blood that is shed. It would be his body that is broken. It would be his death on a cross that would take care of the needs of the sin of humankind. So even in that little moment, you get a picture. Jesus has an example even for himself of what it's going to be like one day when he comes when the promise is fulfilled, when he dies in our place. If you go a little bit farther into Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 18, verse one, it says, the Lord appeared to him. And the context there is he's, Abraham is the him. And Abraham has been promised that there will be a great nation that comes out of him. But yet Abraham is old, his wife, Sarah, is old and they have not yet conceived. They have no children. So it looks like perhaps the Lord will be unfaithful. Will God come through? This is a big moment. 
and it says, the Lord appeared. And he sits down with him in his tent and has a meal. So Jesus, Yahweh God, shows up and talks to Abraham, sits in his tent and has a meal. And he tells him, you're gonna have a son. His name's gonna be Isaac. And I will continue to make you a great nation. So I just want us to see here, this is interesting. So when we studied this before, and let's talk about it again, whenever the name Lord appears in the Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is referring to the name Yahweh. And oftentimes, that particular name of God throughout the whole Old Testament refers to his redemptive work, how he's going to save people from their sins. So Jesus shows up and he's given the name Yahweh. So connect this. The Lord is the name Yahweh, which points to the Redeemer, him being the redeeming one, and it's referring to Jesus, the one in whom we will one day find redemption. Another good quote says, a comparison of the Old Testament and New Testament passages proves beyond a shadow of the doubt that the Christ of the New Testament bears the title of Jehovah or Yahweh or Lord in the Old Testament. It's Jesus. He is Yahweh. Let's continue a little farther. So we're now going to a mountain. There's a point where Abraham has a son named Isaac. It's his only son. And the Lord decides that he's going to tell Abraham to take Isaac up onto a mountain and he is to sacrifice that one and only son to the Lord. Logically, it's hard to make sense of what's happening. Why would God, if you're Abraham, why would God call me to do that? So will Abraham trust God and obey? Or will Abraham, much like Adam and Eve, distrust God and sin? And we see Abraham following God's lead. In Genesis 22, 9, it says, when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there he arranged the wood on it. So he's going through with it. There is a point before he came up on the mountain where Abraham says he's, basically says, he's sure that all of them will then return down the mountain. So in some way, Abraham's believing that God's gonna do something, but he doesn't know what he's going to do. Will he raise Isaac from the dead? Will he stay his hand? What will happen? All Abraham knows now is to be obedient to the Lord. And he then binds his son Isaac. He takes ropes around him and he lays him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife. He was ready to slay his son Isaac. As the knife begins to fall, it says that the angel of the Lord, who is who? Jesus called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that your fear, that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. So remember who is talking to Abraham right now. It is Jesus, the son of God, who is talking to Abraham. Jesus is seeing a father holding a knife over a son. He's been asked to do it and he's been faithful to do so. Does Isaac deserve to die? As much as you and I do for our sin. The father is willing to 
lower his hand onto Isaac and Jesus stops it. Jesus knowing that one day, one day Jesus would be on the cross, Jesus would be on the altar of wood and his father would not be able to stay the knife. It says in Isaiah 53 that the father crushes the son. Isaiah 53 is referencing God the father, Jesus the son on the cross, and it says that the father will crush the son. So where Jesus was able to give mercy and grace to Abraham and Isaac, he knows that there's a day coming when the knife will land. The father will crush the son. Jesus will receive the pointy end of that knife. He will die on a cross and the father will have to give all of his wrath onto the son. That day is coming. Jesus sees that in this moment. Jesus is experiencing that in this moment, even as he's watching Abraham and Isaac do what they've been told to do. In verse 13, it says, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, which is the Hebrew name Jehovah Jireh. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Verse 15 says, then the angel of the Lord, who is who? Jesus called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, and recognize these words from verse 18, and through your offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. So Abraham is faithful to God and Jesus sees that faithfulness and his response is, I'm still coming. That's what that promise is pointing to. Galatians told us that's the gospel message. In response to that, Jesus is saying, I'm coming. I'm going to show up. I'm gonna do what's necessary to save you and all who will believe. The cross is coming. So Jesus provides a ram for Abraham. And that ram, and that's why we're the Bible Center School Rams, that ram points to the day when Jesus himself will be the one who provides himself in place of you and in place of me. And he will sacrifice himself for all nations. It is Jesus who is Jehovah Jireh, God who provides. If we had more time, we could go through the whole Old Testament and just see Jesus showing up again and again and again. If you can think back to the burning bush with Moses and God speaks out of the bush, that's Jesus. There's a point when the nation of Israel is being led out of Egypt and there's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And it says the Lord is looking to his people through the cloud, through the pillar of fire, that is Jesus. In Joshua chapter five, the Lord shows up and does battle with God's people. That is Jesus. When we see the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter three, a guy named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the flames to die because they wouldn't worship a false God. And then they look in the flames and there aren't three, there's four. Why? Because Jesus shows up and takes care of and protects his people. There's even a moment in Exodus 33 where Moses is talking to God and just says, now show me your glory. It says God takes Moses and puts him in the cleft of a rock, like a space that will protect Moses from seeing the whole thing. And Moses gets to see the Lord's back as the Lord passes by. Whose back did he see? That was Jesus. 
Every time that we see the Lord visibly manifesting himself in the Old Testament, it is Jesus. And there are example after examples after examples. Both the promises of Jesus and the presence of Jesus points to the absolute prominence of Jesus in the Old Testament. So when it comes to the prominence of Jesus, it all started with Jesus when he spoke the world into being. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, it was Jesus who said, let there be and there was. He made everything. It's then Jesus who walked with man in the garden. It is Jesus who both reveals and fulfills the plan of redemption. Jesus reveals the Father through personal interaction with God's people. The great events of the Old Testament, the ark, the ram in the thicket, the exodus, the promised land, dot, 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 go on and on. All of it ultimately points to the person and work of Jesus. They're examples, they're pictures of what is to come. The rituals of the Israelites, the tabernacle, the temple, the holy of holies, the sacrificial system, the feasts, the celebrations, they also all point to the coming of Jesus what he will be like, what he will accomplish. They all point to him. Many of the people and roles in the Old Testament also give us a picture of the coming Messiah. David is king. Melchizedek is high priest. The prophets are all shadows. They're all types of Jesus, Emmanuel, who is to come. They imperfectly point to the coming of a perfect savior. Jesus' coming and Jesus himself is the heartbeat of the Old Testament. As you're watching and reading the Old Testament, there's this thumping taking place in the background. He is coming, he is coming, he is coming. Our hope is in him. He will be successful in doing what he promised he would do. Jesus comes to earth as a man and he lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that we should have died. He lived a perfect life. You and I are called to live a perfect life and we don't do it. We can't do it, but he does. And then he died the death that we should have died. Because of our sin, we should have been on that cross. We should have bore the wrath of God. For everyone who believes, Jesus bears that wrath for us. He died the death that we should have died. And then he rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He now sits at the right hand of God in all his glory, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth and everywhere has been given to him. It is his. And one day he will return with power and glory. He died as our savior, but he will return as the glorious king. He will restore, he will remake, he will renew all things. And according to Philippians 2, every knee, every knee will bow, mine, yours, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Christians from every tribe, tongue, and nation will praise him for all of eternity. He will reign supreme. When time ends, he continues to reign supreme forever, prominent, central in all things. In Revelation chapter nine, we get a picture of this forever. It says, they sang a new song saying, this is to Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign 
on the earth. John goes on and says, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, an innumerable number of angels, a sea of angels. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they're saying this, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, to receive wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise, exclamation point. And they say it over and over again because it's true. Verse 13, then I heard every creature. So not just the angels are surrounding the throne. Now every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and in the sea, basically every living thing in all of creation saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever, forever. The four living creatures said, amen, amen. And they just fell down and they worshiped Jesus. It all started with him. Everything in scripture points to him. It all ends with him. Jesus is the center of all of human history. And he's also the centerpiece of redemption and the renewal of all things for all time. If, if this is true and we know it to be so, if Jesus is the center of all of scripture, if he's the center of all of human history, if he's the center of every, when, if he's the center of everything when time ends and eternity begins, if he's the center of all that as well, is he the center of our lives? If he's the prominent figure of all of scripture, is he the prominent figure in our lives? And I believe the same two things that we used to see him being the prominent figure in the Old Testament, a guide, a torch, promises and presence, are the same two things that will help us keep Jesus as the central figure, the prominent one in our lives. First, it comes to his promises. Jesus promises that if you've placed your faith in him as Lord and Savior, there's nothing you can do to mess up that relationship because that relationship is no longer based on you. The promise is that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus now lives inside of you. You are his, you are now a child of God, forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. You can wake up every day knowing you have security in this relationship. That promise gives you the ability to fall down and to get back up and to hug Jesus and keep him central in your life. It's his promise that permits that. His promise secures you, it sustains you now and forever. And his presence, his presence. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in all his glory, all his glory. But the Bible is also clear that he is present with us. He says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He says that to his disciples, Jesus does. So he's with us. But the Bible also tells us that his spirit lives in us. So when it comes to his presence, it's all around us and it's in us. Every waking and sleeping moment of every day of your life until your life ends is all about Jesus. His presence is in you and it surrounds you at all times. So with that promise that you can't lose your relationship with him 
and the fact that he's always, always with you, it just makes sense that he becomes the centerpiece of your life. What you think about, what you care about, what you do, the relationships you have, how you treat people, how you spend your time. If he's prominent, that means sometimes when you wake up and you can't fall back asleep, you just start talking to him. If you have a little gap during your day, you spend some time in his word. If you're in the car, turn on something to remind you of how great he is and worship him. Use those little moments and set aside even some bigger moments of time to be with the one you love. Remind yourself of the promises. Sit in his presence. And none of these things are things that we can do on our own. So let's pray and ask for his help. Father, we come before you. And Jesus, how fun to talk about you. How fun to see you throughout scripture. How fun to see just the prominence that you are everywhere throughout scripture. What was it like for you, Jesus, to be in the garden and to have those conversations, to clothe Adam and Eve, to make that promise to Abraham, to watch what happened with Isaac on the mountain, to know that that was you, Jesus, who would stand in our place. You lived the life we should have lived and you died the death that I should have died, that each of us should have died. So we praise you this morning and we ask that you would be central in our lives, in our hearts, our minds, in our schedules, in our relationships. Only you can do this. Do that, so we ask that you would. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center.